Please turn with me to Isaiah 55, as we will be looking at verses 6 through 13 of Isaiah 55 as we continue our study in this book. This kind of finishes up a major portion of the book of Isaiah. Before we go to God's word, let's go to him again in prayer and ask for his help. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your holy word, we pray that you would help us because we are not holy in and of ourselves. We are called holy ones. We are called saints, not because of something that we have done, but because of your merit alone. And so as we stand here together, as we open your word together, we also need you with us to guide us, to give us understanding and wisdom, to show us our sinfulness, that we might repent and return to you. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us as we open your word. Be glorified as we learn. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So last week we were looking at the first five verses and we had this kind of great banquet set before us as the people of God entered into heaven. And so I want to revisit that picture because that is an important picture going forward in the rest of this chapter. And I want to do so by looking at one of Jesus' parables in Luke chapter 14. So turn with me there and we'll quickly read through that parable. Luke chapter 15, 14, excuse me, 15 through 24. So Luke 14, starting at verse 15. When one of those who reclined at the table with him had heard these things, he said to them, Blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have bought a field. I must first go and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I must go examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that the house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So understand what's going on here. In this, and in the context of Isaiah 55 also, the master has prepared this great feast and many were invited. But in the end, the master sent his servant out to go out and to bring in only the most destitute, the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. And he said also, go to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in. The highways and the hedges, as you can only imagine, would not have included the upper crust. But this was the underbelly of society. As Jesus gives this parable, he gives it in the midst of his quarrels with the Pharisees and at the height of his popularity and ministry also when he was healing the poor crippled, blind, and lame. 
The comparison between the religious elite that reject Jesus and those at the bottom of the barrel who seemingly do not deserve him. And that's the crux of where we are at in Isaiah. A banquet full of sinners who do not deserve redemption. Yet have a Savior who paid the ultimate price that they may have it nonetheless. In our text today, we have an invitation like the one that we saw in Luke 14 and like the ones that we see all over Scripture, the invitation to repent and believe, to turn away from one's sin and turn to a gracious God who is willing and able to pardon him. And we'll see this invitation set beside the Lord's sovereign decree to save whomever he will. Not only are these ideas important in the life of the covenant community, and an individual believer, but they're also important as we do gospel ministry as a church, as we go about our individual lives, fulfilling God's great commission. So as we consider this text, I want to break it up into three main ideas. The content of the invitation, the absurdity of the invitation, and the completion of the invitation. And so with that, let's look together at... The text today, Isaiah 55, starting at verse 6. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 55, starting at verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, bringing it making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which it, for which I sent. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So for a little bit of context, again, we're going to get deeper and deeper into the context as we work our way through this passage, but I want to remember, us remember our immediate context here. There is a banquet set before the people of God. It wasn't for those who were deserving of it, the good, upstanding religious folk, but for the once, for the ones who were once called children of wrath. Or like the parable that we read from our Lord Jesus, the poor, crippled, blind, and lame. And these aren't just physical infirmities that he is referring to, but they represent our spiritual status before a holy God. And so as we come to this passage today, this context is very important. Because this is a text that the New Testament quotes quite a bit, and it gets quoted quite a bit by Christians today. And it's important for us to understand what's going on. If we look at this passage, we have to keep in mind 
that the pictures that Jesus gave us, those the pictures of those highways and hedges and the king inviting people from them to come in. We don't need to see ourselves as the ones who are already seated at the table waiting for the rabble to come in and find their seat also. We are the rabble. And when we have this right view of ourselves, this text will open up before us. And that brings us to the first point, the content of the invitation. Look with me again at verses 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. So again, remember our historical context. Isaiah is prophesying about a people who will be in exile because of their sin, and they will be delivered from that exile. And their deliverance is a picture of this ultimate redemption that's eventually going to occur and has occurred in Christ. And for us, who can be redeemed? Well, this is the invitation that we read here. Who can be redeemed? Anyone who accepts this invitation can have the redemption of God. Notice that we have all the elements of salvation here that we find over and over in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Seek the Lord. Call upon His name. The element of belief is there. Let the wicked forsake His way. Let Him then return to the Lord. Repentance. It's no secret why Jesus, when he came, what did he come preaching? Repent and believe. Because this is the message of salvation. It's always been the message of salvation. When the sinner realizes their need of the Lord, they will call upon his name. They will turn from their wicked ways and notice the result that we see here. For he, the Lord, will abundantly pardon God's plan of salvation includes the pardon of those sinners because it is the only way that he can have a relationship with them. And in order to secure their pardon, he sent his only son to be a payment for their sins. His only son, eternal God Almighty, became man and died on behalf of his covenant people. So all the necessary preparations and accommodations have been made for the redemption of of the sinner. They need only accept this invitation of God, call upon his name, and be saved. One of the criticisms that we often receive in the Reformed tradition is we receive it on our view of God's freedom to save whomever he will. And our critics will point to verses like this and they will say, See, all are invited. To receive salvation. All are invited to come. And to that we say, yes. All are invited. And that's why we preach this message to all. So that all can hear. But what these folks will miss is while this invitation is to all, not everyone is able to hear it and accept it. Remember the parable that Jesus told, we just read, There were lots of excuses as to why they couldn't come to the banquet. So the master told his servant to go out and compel them to come. The poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. It's not as if those people thought, you know, I wonder what's going on in the king's house today. 
I think I'll go in and check it out. It's also not as if that servant went out to find those people who were physically able to walk in on their own. Placing tracks and posters in strategic locations so that those who are physically able or even have some a bit of intellectual ability were able to see it and say, you know what, that sounds like a great idea, I think I'll do that. No, he went to the most destitute and he had to compel them to come. And even if they were able, why would they? What does the rest of scripture tell us concerning those that they were enemies of God? When you consider the whole idea of redemption, that an undeserving people can gain the ultimate reward through no work of their own, it is absolutely crazy. It doesn't line up with any sense that we would dream up of ourselves. If we had created the gospel, there would be stipulations. There would be opt-outs. Just see this. Any false gospel that exists, look at it. There are stipulations. But with the true gospel, the requirement of that gospel has already been fulfilled. And God keeps his end of the bargain even when we can't or don't want to. And that makes no common sense to us because we want it to be about us. And that brings us to the next point, the absurdity of the invitation. When I read these next couple of verses, it makes me think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He, what did he say concerning the gospel? That it's, that it's foolishness to natural man. He says it doesn't make any sense at all. It's absolute foolishness. And we read this, when we read this in, here in Isaiah 55, it should make sense to us then why God says what he says next. Verses 8 and 9. Because natural man thinks it's foolishness. Well, what does God think concerning his plan of redemption? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Because it's not a gospel that we thought of, because it's the gospel of God, we can't possibly understand his thoughts there is an inconceivable gap between our thoughts and his thoughts just as there is an inconceivable gap between a man-centered gospel and a christ-centered gospel this is the same conclusion that paul comes to when he writes the book of romans you you we've read through, we just went through the book of romans together as a church which is essentially the first, especially the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans is just a treatise on salvation. Paul comes to this same conclusion when he gets to the end of his whole treatise on salvation. He comes to this same conclusion concerning the thoughts of God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11 and we'll read from there. I'll start at verse 30. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been on disobedient, 
been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now receive mercy. For God has consigned to all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And listen to his conclusion. As Paul completes his treatise of the gospel, this is where he, this is where he finally comes down. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul comes to the end of this treatment of salvation. And to this conclusion, one that he shares with Isaiah, he's like, how can this even be possible that I'm reading this? How can it, how can anyone possibly be saved? And here we have before us this inconceivable plan of redemption that we would not have dreamed up in our wildest dreams. Part of our problem with a God-centered salvation is that it doesn't have anything to do with us at all. You've probably all heard the Jonathan Edwards quote, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And he's got the right of it. We are called to seek him and repent, but we can't even do that without his help. We want a salvation that we can make better because we want a God that we can control. A salvation that isn't polished by our good works represents a God whose thoughts and ways are so much greater than our thoughts and our ways. And as much as we know this in our best times, we know this is true. It's in our worst times that we tend to wander away from this simple truth. That's why verses 8 and 9 of Isaiah 55 are so important for us to understand the mind of God. But more importantly, they help us to understand that the salvation we have is so much different than anyone else would ever have come up with. I mean, if you look at the other religions of the world, they all have this balance between their good works and the pleasure of some God they're trying to please. Even when there isn't a vengeful God that's going to strike down evildoers, there's still the fear of, you know, maybe even being re- reincarnated as something undesirable. There's this constant fear of, of messing up. There's a drive to do good in order to receive a piece of the eternal pie. And for many religions, including false views of our own, this kind of fear will just leads ultimately to universalism. Well, I don't know. I guess everyone just gets to heaven. Since I'm not good and I'm going to heaven, I guess everyone goes, right? Yet when we come to the scriptures of the only and the one true God, we read that the salvation that he has for us has already been purchased by the blood of his son. We read about the good works of a son and the active obedience of Christ, that his righteousness was applied to his people so that they might be justified before a holy God. It doesn't say anything there about my righteousness. It does. It says it's filthy rags. We read about atonement that he made on our behalf because without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And it took the very blood of the eternal son of God to make a payment for our sins. And all of this was knowing full well 
that you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, could never pay for it. In fact, it was done even while we were yet enemies. He died for us. And so what does this say to us? Well, we go back up to verse 1 of 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. He alone can make this happen because his word will always do as he says it will. That brings us to the last point, the completion of the invitation. Back in chapter 40, you can turn there if you want, but I'll quote just quickly from verses 8 and 9 of chapter 40. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And here we read something very similar in verses 10 and 11. Look with me at chapter 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word goes out and it always does exactly what he intends for it to do. That should make sense to us. We know who God is according to the scriptures. He would not be God if he said something and it didn't happen. He's the same one that spoke all things into existence. He's the same one who's able to save whomever he wills. He is able to call the lost sinner to himself and make a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. For our ministry as a church, for each of our families, for each one of us as individuals, this should be one of the most comforting verses in all of Scripture. Because without this truth, we might be made to wonder whether or not God is able to do all that He chooses to do. That perhaps He does want to do some things, but is not quite able to get them accomplished. But that's not what we read. We read quite the opposite. He is able to do all He wants. In fact, it's this truth that drew Christians and churches all over Europe back to the one true gospel of Christ at the Reformation. The Reformation was founded on the principle of sola scriptura, which God's word is the sole source and authority for all faith and practice. I listened to a sermon recently by Dr. Vody Bauckham. I encourage you to listen to anything that, that man has. He's a really, really incredible preacher. and he, he made this point. He talked about that during the time before the Reformation... The Roman church kept God's word away from the people. And in doing so, they were able to do some pretty awful things because they would just say, well, you can't understand God's word. Only we can understand it. And even their worship centered around the table, which we have here before us. And that was even kept a mystery for them. But what happened at the Reformation? Well, the shift went away from the table to the pulpit. Where the word of God was on center stage. But if you look at the church today. What has happened? We have this verse here before us. Where we read that the word of God is able to accomplish all that it wants to do. And what's happened to the word? Well it's, it's no longer the pulpit. 
That is the primary piece of furniture in the church. Instead, it's the stage. And this is what Dr. Bauckham said. He says, we've gone from the sacrament to the sermon, and now we've moved to the show. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we start believing that God's word will not accomplish what it is purpose to do, we will start to improvise. We will start to come up with ways that we think we need to kind of prop up God's word so that it can be more effective. God doesn't need our ingenuity. He doesn't need our creativity. He's perfectly able to do all that he intends to do, and he has given us the way to do it. When Paul was given a charge or giving a charge to his disciple Timothy, he didn't charge him to go out into all of Asia Minor and be relevant and trendy. He didn't charge him with all the ways to be positive and and keep things light. You don't need to bring sin up a whole lot. You just need to be positive. He charged him to preach the word in season and out of season. That charge has not changed, nor has the means by which God calls a lost people to himself. What did Jesus say concerning his lost sheep? He read from last week. They hear his voice. They know it. Where do we find his voice? We find it in his word. Who are we to shrink back from preaching God's word? in order to make the message more palatable for the lost, or worse yet, make it more palatable for us. We need the Word of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. We need it in its fullness. In fact, we cannot make it without it. It is the only comfort that we have that what God intends to do will happen. In this last scene, verses 12 and 13, let me read for you. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. This last scene shows us that God's word never returns void. The scene of the exiles returning home. Brothers and sisters, we await that day. But as we await that day, let us be faithful to be preachers of God's word. In conclusion, we have such a great salvation. It's so wonderful that we can hardly even understand it. Who can know the mind of the Lord? And so let us first remember the truth for ourselves. The same gospel that saved us is the one that continues to hold us close. And let us be faithful preachers of the word. That God's word might go forth and accomplish salvation for a lost world. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we come to you as a people who heard the voice of the shepherd who heard the very words of the eternal son of God and whose hearts were changed in an instant because that is what you do and we are thankful 
Lord, we pray as your ever-wandering sheep that you would draw us close, that you would help us to remember your word, the power of your word, the peace found in your word, the comfort therein. And not only that, but that we would see your word as the only way to see a lost people come to know their Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.